We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McEachran, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. Life is a continual series of choices. Every day, we are presented with options of what to do with our bodies, our voices, and most importantly, our thoughts and beliefs. These daily choices all add up and create the results in our lives, the projects we work on, the goals we achieve, and the people we connect with. I always find it inspiring when someone's choices transform a not-so-great life experience into something positive and helpful to our world. Frederick and I first met at an art gallery in Chicago. Both of us were presenting our art for critique from other artists. It was a unique way to initially meet someone, as an intimate part of us, our creative expression, is the first thing we are seeing of each other. I found Frederick's artwork extremely interesting and thoughtful, and as I got to know him personally, I was impressed by his story. He started his creative journey with writing, but this was derailed by some serious mental health issues. He was not able to keep things moving with writing, but he found visual arts, specifically painting, was a beneficial escape for him. The great part about Frederick's story is how he has taken his life experiences and making choices that enable him to use them in a positive, helpful way. I am excited to share my conversation with artist Frederick Nitsch. When you started painting at the age of 20, was that the first time you had done stuff creative? Can you tell me a little bit about your experience with creativity, creative expression up until 20? Um, yeah, so uh, by that time, like I had never uh, felt like I had any aptitude for visual art. Um, I always like knew that I you know, couldn't draw. Uh, and I felt, so I felt because of that, um, like visual art was sort of off limits for me. Okay. Um, and, um, but I was a writer, like I was studying philosophy in college and, um, but I was super involved with like the literary scene at my college. Uh, I led writing critique groups and I was like the MC of a lot of the open mic nights at the local coffee shop. Um, and at a mo open night, open mic night, people would be reading what they wrote. I yeah, like, so like poetry or short stories right, or something. Right, right. So, okay. so that was sort of my thing. So and writing I was, was your was your thing. Yeah, yeah, and that's really what I expected to be doing with my life was writing. But then when I was writing my senior thesis, um, I was getting pretty lost in that. Um, I just I was going through a breakup, and uh, a friend was just like, you need like a nonverbal outlet. Um, so I was getting pretty lost in my thoughts and lost in my thesis. And uh, she just like gave me a set of paints. And I, I was like, what do I do with these? Like, I can't draw, you know that. And she was like, just move the colors around, like just do something with them. And, um, and I did, and I liked it. Um, I, at first, I was, like, trying to do, like, I love Bob Ross growing up. So I was trying to do, like, trees and, and you know, little houses. And it, they did look awful. Um, but I, something started happening in, 
like the non-figurative areas, uh, like in the sky and the ground. Um, something when the colors were blurring, like something was happening that I liked. Um, so I pretty soon quit attempting to do anything figurative and I just focused on figuring out like what exactly was happening when those colors were blurring in that way that I liked and like how could I replicate that. Um, and I basically spent like the next 10 years uh, trying to figure out exactly how that worked. How, meaning how... how... How to make the colors blur in that particular way that I liked so much, um, which, which ended up becoming a tool that I could then use intentionally to create these um, like sort of vague ghostly organic shapes with like very ill-defined edges. This sounds very interesting. This journey in visual art, can you map that to a similar journey in writing? Because I'm not a writer, so I'm not really familiar with like how that works in your brain and what the creative process is. Is there a mapping? Is there, or are they just completely separate? Well, so if you're asking about just like to draw an analogy to writing, I'm not sure I can. I mean, perhaps it would be something like, you know, figuring out how to like, I don't know, trying to master like the sonnet or something. But but an analogy is, is difficult because, so I was beginning to get really into painting as as I was having real difficulties with academia and with writing. And was that were those difficulties because of something having to do with the writing process, or were there other things that are happening? Yeah, so it's sort of like um, so the other story going on. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I finished college. I got some job in a call center that I hated, um, and I was just like, "Hey, I I was good at school." So so you had finished college at this point? Yeah. Okay. And I was like, "I was good at school." Maybe I'll just try to do more school. So I started applying to like PhD programs. Um, and so I, I got into Loyola out here in Chicago for like a combined MA PhD in philosophy, kind of thinking naively that that would be like more college and they give you a stipend to teach. So I came out here and it was not that right? It's a very different thing. They're training you to be a professor and you're doing research for a dissertation. Uh, and I became terribly, terribly depressed. So at that point, like I wasn't doing creative writing at all. I was just doing academic writing. And so it was not what you expected, not what you planned. And it right. just put you in a depressed state. And yeah. You were unable to produce, to, to do the work. Yeah. And so writing at that time became very like inextricably tied with anxiety and i've i've recently started writing again a little bit but like during my time in grad school and then until i quit i quit after four years of that program um i was just like unable to write at all so when you are in a difficult place personally mm -hmm. it sounds like it's difficult for you to write is that yeah. accurate? Is it is it easy for you to paint? Yeah, um, yeah. Paint painting painting was my escape. Painting was my uh, refuge. It was my therapy. 
um yeah okay that's yeah, that's, absolutely. That, that's so interesting i um uh, that is not the case for me like mm. painting for me is not i have to be in a good mental state mm. to it's kind of like it sounds like writing is for you i have to be in a really good place to paint and i have to be fit healthy eating well well rested etc in order for me to paint or else I can't, like, I think I, to I told you today when we were outside, like I went to the studio for two hours and I had to leave. I just couldn't do it today. And it really bummed me out because I'm working on something I'm super excited about. Um, but uh, my mood is just really low today. And um, so I couldn't do it. But I was speaking to my sister this weekend and she's an avid reader. And um, she, and I asked her about when you're like really in a low, low pr place, are you able to like read and process words? Cause I can't do that either. Like reading is kind of like painting. And she said, yeah, she said, it's like her escape kind of like painting is for you. For me, it's cooking. Like I can be in the worst mood ever and I can just go in the kitchen and start a big cooking project and I feel great and I don't have to, I don't know, I don't need to be in a good mood to do it. Um, so it's just interesting that yeah. everyone is so different in the way that different outputs you are able to do some of them you can't do um depending on your mood and others are something that you can do to improve your mood so the simul the the sort of simultaneous story going on with me in graduate school me like stopping writing me taking up painting as an escape and then maintaining painting as this hobby um that sort of sustained me so that, like, the simultaneous story was, I mean, I, I left graduate school because I was hospitalized for depression. And the following, like, six years were extremely rough. I would be hospitalized two more times. So specifically of writing, I feel like it was difficult for me because, you know, I think common depressive symptoms like negative self-talk, right? Uh, overthinking things like that was, that came out on the page. Mm -hmm. um, and just this purely visual thing. And what I explained before, like trying to um, figure out this, this sort of blurry thing, right? It became this very focused experiment for me. I was only using the primary colors in white for most of the time, I was only using one sort of brush, one sort of painting surface. It was a very focused experiment. And, and something about how focused that was um, allowed painting, abstract painting, to be this escape from thinking that like I couldn't experience like with the majority of my time. That makes complete sense to me. Had you ever uh, found anything else that did the same thing? that allowed you to um, re-channel, refocus your thinking in your mind in a way in the past? Or was this the first time you discovered something like that? I think that was really the, the first big thing that ever did that for me. Um, I think I had glimpses of that perhaps when I was going through some rough periods in college and I did like comedy a little bit. But it was just I just sort of dipped my toe in in comedy, um, but but that's why like four years ago, like after the last time I was hospitalized, 
I signed up for an improv class, which seemed ridiculous at the time, given how depressed I still was. Ridiculous to you? or Ridiculous to me. Or to others? Uh, no, I didn't. I mean, other people didn't know at the time. Oh, okay. I wasn't so open about these things. But like, to me, it was like, I haven't, you know, laughed in five years. Like, I'm signing up for improv. Did, well, it, did it work? It worked. I loved it. Um, and I'm still doing it. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like... Um, I feel like improv, like doing improv is like the opposite of social anxiety. Like if social anxiety is what causes you to not say anything in a group because you're thinking, what if it's stupid? What if mm -hmm. it's bad and wrong? Improv is just like built on the belief that what you say is fine. But and not only fine, that, but other people will say, oh, I'll take this and I'll do something with it. So what would improv do that would help you with social anxiety? I, I remember for really all of my life, I remember if I was out with, I mean, on like, you know, obviously on a date, but also like with a group of friends who I knew well, I remember like I would have an idea for like maybe a, I don't know, a funny comment or something, right? But I remember I would like think like, should I say this? Right. And then, and then you wait so long the moment passes mm. and then you kick yourself for not saying it. Okay. This, whole, this whole, this whole snowball. I honestly don't have those moments really anymore. So now you just, now you just say it? I yeah, you kind of learn to trust yourself that like what you're like what you're thinking, what you want to say and contribute is fine. Um and maybe even good. Okay. Um yeah, it just sort of has helped it helped in conjunction with other things to like reorient the way that I engage with myself and the world. It sounds like you went through clearly a very depressed period mm. and you took some specific action that pulled you out of it therapy engaging with creativity in the form of painting and also improv yeah yeah now i know that you are involved in talking uh, a couple things involved in taking this knowledge that you have learned and trying to help others is that is that a clear description yeah can you yeah. tell me tell me about that what you're doing sure. now yeah so you know for a long time when i was really sick i wasn't working like i was so sick i was not able to um i would try getting jobs and then panic attacks and quit so i i was really not employed and then after this last time in the hospital like big med changes were made and a lot of things changed for me um and then i felt after a couple of months there, I got a job busting tables and sort of working my way way up back into, I think, what I'd always felt was expected of me, which was like um, sort of a um, traditional job. Sure. Um, so for, for me, uh, that ended up looking like a year with a company that did uh, like in-school tutoring at a high school. Um, and you were a tutor? Yeah, I was a math tutor, oh. oddly so, because I don't love math, but that was what the job was. And, Sounds like fun. Um, and I'd been a teacher in different capacities before, so I was like, you know, cool. What what topics in math did you teach? Uh, it was it was basic. It was like algebra and geometry. It was like ninth and tenth grade uh, math. Okay. Um, so I was I was able to do it. Um, but yeah, so I I guess a a few things happened. But so you know, this was the year that Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. And I was teaching in a school that had a lot of immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, and after Trump was elected, um, and I was working like one-on-two, one-on-three with these kids, um, a number of my students 
um, you know, who are um, who were not born here, um, started getting really, really depressed uh, and scared that they were going to be deported. And I mean, one of them said that I mean, confided in me that she um, had started thinking about suicide. I mean, it was it was a lot, and I and between those. You know, I I didn't want to be talking about math anymore. You know, I wanted to be talking about what they were going through and mental health. You know, this made me think back to what what if I had gotten better mental health education when I was their age? You know, all all this stuff. So, I don't know. I feel like I had made, I I, I had sort of by default made a decision like, okay, I'm better now. I'm gonna leave all this hard, heavy stuff in my past, in my past. And that suddenly didn't feel like the path I wanted to take anymore. Mm-hmm. So when that job ended, um, I got a job walking dogs, and um, I started looking for any organization uh, in Chicago that did like mental health education for high schoolers. And that search did not take very long um, because I found uh, NAMI, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and they have a program called Ending the Silence, um, where people who are uh, in recovery, uh, living with a mental health condition, can go into uh, high schools with them uh, and tell their story. So I got in touch, and I, I did that um, a couple times, and I, I really liked doing it. Um, and you would talk to what a classroom or talk, an, or an auditorium? Um, sometimes an auditorium, but typically a classroom like either health or gym. And I like doing that. Like it felt really good to be doing that. And like, and it was your to- a topic of your your presentation. Like you decided what you were going to talk about. Well, so there was like a main presentation, which is what I'm doing now, which I'll I'll get back to, where um, somebody would talk about general things like signs and symptoms of um, not specific mental health conditions. We don't want kids diagnosing themselves, but like signs and symptoms that it might be time to talk to somebody, um, how to talk about suicide, um, how to destigmatize mental illness generally um, for most of the period. And then someone like me would talk for about 10 minutes about like just my life, like your life story mm-hmm. um, and take questions. You know, NAMI thinks it's really important, as do I, that it's important not just to give the facts, but also that kids like meet and hear from people sure. in recovery, hear the yeah. story. So I did that. Uh, so you use the term that you're in recovery yeah. from mental I'm not, I don't think I've heard of someone using, I mean, obviously I've heard of people use that term when it um, talks about substance abuse, mm-hmm. and but I've never heard of mm-hmm. it with, with specifically around mental illness. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, it, it's funny. It's funny to hear you say that because that's something I hear all the time. What in, I just in, said? No, no. What what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Like being in recovery is sort of like that's like the the term. Yeah, um, and I mean I think a way to explain it is, um, I'm not gonna. I don't feel like I'm recovered, mm-hmm. right? I mean I'm, I'm I'm another way to put it would be like I'm in the maintenance phase, mm-hmm. right? Make, no, it makes total sense. Yeah, it makes total yeah. sense to me. Yeah. Um, now, I do think that when I was in high school in the 80s, um, there was very little talk of, um, you know, anxiety, <clears throat> um, depression, bipolar disorder, 
you know, none of these things were ever talked about. Um, I see it all the time, like it's young celebrities. Uh, I don't even know how I have insight to what young celebrities are doing, but it somehow makes it into my um, brain. But yeah, they're always talking about um, things that they're struggling yeah. with. And it seems like it is very much talked about. I, I would be surprised that kids in high school would not be aware of mental illness, the fact that it shouldn't be stigmatized. Um, is that not the case or? Yeah, it's no. I mean, I think people are people are talking about it more, but no, I mean, it's it's. Yeah, no, we, we have a long we have a long, long way to go. I mean, I mean, sometimes different presenters will, you know, ask if um, so. So they'll ask if people know somebody living with a mental health condition and sometimes some hands go up but like not all of them or not many um and that does depend on where the school is and what the demographic is what the home culture is and i can say that with um you know my father is a refu he was a refugee when he was a, a kid and he's not american so i understand it when someone's home culture is not one where you talk about your feelings so yeah, we have more celebrities talking about mental health conditions, but that doesn't. I think people in our generation, I I think we're we're seeing it more in the news, uh, and more on our social media feeds. But but I I do not think that's sort of suddenly translated into our our kids feeling comfortable talking about these things. Okay. Um, no, I can assume that when you were younger you were experiencing things related symptoms or depression first of all is that is that accurate yeah. okay yeah. now um what do you think would have been different if you had someone like you coming to your high school and talking about symptoms things to look out for etc um yeah i mean so my so just just one just one example. So I remember very specifically the reason I didn't talk to anybody my own age, uh, in particular my brother who's two years older, was because I felt very sure that all of my like intrusive thoughts and depressed thoughts were contagious. Like if I told them to somebody else, that they would start having them too, right? And that's obviously not how... meaning you would be bringing them down, or right, or like, was it an irrational, like a an irrational thought about transferring like, the contents of your brain? Type well, thing? I mean, so so, of like, it was sort of like I've had all these, what I thought then were sort of like obvious insights about, you know, um, sort of people are insignificant and there's death everywhere. Uh, but if I shared them with somebody who wasn't already thinking about them, that they would, of course, start thinking about them. I see. Me having explained them, right? So you'd be pointing out something that they didn't, they right. were ignorant of, and you would right. be making them aware of it, and you would be responsible it, for making them aware of this reality that exa you had. Okay. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I, didn't, I, I didn't use the word depression about myself for like 10 more years after that. So I didn't know that the kinds of thoughts I was having, the fact that they were intrusive, the fact that they were so quick in my head, I didn't know that that had anything to do with brain chemistry, with with depression, with, with anything like that. So I was just very misinformed, right? Mm -hmm. And if anybody 
had had come to talk to a class of kids that I was in and had said anything about some sort of warning sign or some sort of symptom of depression that had resonated with me, and it would have resonated with me, I might have felt like, wow, this isn't just me. I can talk to people about this, and I'm not going to like spread this, spread these negative thoughts around, which was very much my concern. That they are in just, they are in fact just thoughts. Exactly. They're not reality. Exactly. I did actually once talk to um, an, an adult in the school about it. The guidance counselor called me in when I was in eighth grade because my grades, which had always been really great, were, were suddenly slipping a lot. Um, and I did actually try explaining all of these things I was thinking. And I was told, like, maybe you should play more sports. Mm. And, and I remember thinking at the time that he was really stupid and didn't mm. understand me. But now, and this is something that I, I share when I speak about these things, um, you know, when I speak with the police or speak with the, the, the fire at the fire academy, um, speak with adults, is that I think it just scared this adult to realize that a 13-year-old was thinking about such dark and complicated things. Mm -hmm. So when, when we at NAMI talk to different parts of our community, it's so that we engender a community where kids know like among themselves, they're educated, but also they know that when they do try talking to an adult, that adult will take them seriously. Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So it sounds like you have this situation where you're dealing with children, uh, well, high school kids, yeah. and kind of uh, who may or may not be in a uh, mental health situation, yeah. crisis, but just kind of informing them about the landscape, et cetera. Yeah. You also do something around... Uh, uh, police departments yeah. and, and helping them to understand mental illness. Yeah. Now that would be different because they would be, the, the intersection of mental illness with them would be in a crisis situation. Right. Because right. They, so tell me a little bit about that work sure. that you do. Yeah, so, so I, had, I had done um, those like school talks as like the talking about my life presentation a couple times. And then my boss found out that I do improv and she asked me if I'd like to sort of apply an interview for um, doing the doing role plays uh, with the crisis intervention team training, the CIT training that NAMI helps facilitate with the police academy. Um, so I've been doing that now for about two years, and I love it. I think I think it is it's vital to people's safety. Um, you know. So so ba so just what it is. Yeah, what exactly yeah. are you So when those when those police officers leave spending a day or however long it is with you, what is it that they know that they didn't know? Sure. So so the police officers and it you know, it's it's sergeants to two, it's 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 detectives, sometimes we have people from SWAT or we've had a few FBI people in there. Uh it's a full week 40-hour training and they are hearing the entire week from different specialists. Um, and then on Thursday, um, I and four or five other people from NAMI um, will do role play simulations of various mental health crises. So we will be in a room, and this is all videotaped because we'll watch it 
all together on Friday and talk about it. Um, officers, typically in groups of three, um, will have, you know, what would have been a 911 call um, information come into the room, and their job is to then use what they've gleaned from that week in terms of um, how to express empathy, validating statements, tone of voice, etc., but also how to assess non-judgmentally for the proper information that they might need for an involuntary hospitalization petition and try to get us, right, the people in crisis, to agree to go to the hospital. And we are, some of the scenarios that, that I do because I, I'm also at the fire academy are, are not things that are based on personal experiences, um, sometimes based off experiences of people I've known. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, the things that we are all enacting have to do with something we have experienced. And there is CIT training in many cities. Chicago is you is unique. There are not many cities that use people with lived experience to do the trainings. So then we do that all afternoon on Thursdays. And then Friday morning, we all get together. And each group of officers goes twice. Um, once in a room where there is no weapon, once in a room where the person in crisis has a weapon. Uh, on Fridays, we'll watch all the videos together, um, and the sergeant or lieutenant in charge of that week will um, talk about it from a tactical point of view if everyone was safe. My boss from NAMI will talk about it from a psychological point of view. Um, the officers will be asked how they felt about it. The person in crisis will discuss how it felt to them. Um, and we'll drink some coffee. And um, yeah, that's basically how it goes. I think that this is in a um, a great story, really an inspiring story of someone taking a a life experience and turning it into that sounds like it probably was not good yeah. to say the least, <laughs> and turn it into something that's really helpful to other people. That's fantastic. I don't think most people have that sort of experience. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I was brought to the hospital first, the first time by my brother, the second time by a social worker who I knew, and the last time I was brought from an outpatient program back just upstairs to inpatient. Mm -hmm. And I know, like, in Chicago alone, there are like 130, 140 mental health-related 911 calls every day. So there are a lot of people in mental health crises which are terrifying enough, being brought to the hospital by police. And it, it's already escalated enough simply because they are police, and we know that. And if there's anything that we can do to help train them better to make that already terrifying, confusing situation less terrifying and confusing, then I am so happy to be a part of that. And I... I mean, at the end of the Friday uh, debrief, we we all get up there and, you know, say a bit of like a sentence or two about ourselves. And I always tell each group that I always tell them that I, I tell everybody I meet that this happens in our city and that there are people who they will hopefully never meet who are proud of them, right? Because 
yeah, they're doing, they're doing something really important. Okay. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. So how does your history with mental illness in your brain, uh, the brain that you have, uh, how does that influence and relate to your artwork? Um, yeah. So I, I think I mentioned before that like for a good 10, 12 years, doing just abstract painting was a good um, escape. Like I used painting as an escape from thinking and that really worked for me. Um, but then maybe th three, three and a half years ago, where I'd solidly been out of the hospital and felt fully well, you know, for a good period, um, I, I felt, I felt like comfortable enough in my mind to start re-engaging with things that made me uncomfortable, um, with the news, with social issues that made me uncomfortable, uh, things that I had kind of steer, steered clear from while I was super depressed, like I felt very fragile, um, and I felt a bit tougher, and I felt like uh, I wanted to perhaps use my art as a vehicle of thought rather than an escape from it. Okay. So that is when I started making like basic photo collages. Um, and it was a friend actually who suggested maybe I combine my painting with the collages. And that was a big door opening. Um, but I think a big like the, the, another big door opened when I was talking to a friend and we kind of figured out that we both like, like art, whether it's visual or film or whatever, that just makes us uncomfortable. Um, you like art that makes you I uncomfortable. I do like it. Okay. I do. Uh, I didn't back when I was depressed, right? Because I felt sort of fragile and I steered clear of things that were uncomfortable. But now that I was feeling like good and stable and happy, like the art I think that I find the most interesting often is art that makes me a little bit uneasy. Mm -hmm. um, and this was around the time that I was starting to do all this work with NAMI and getting very personal and talking about my personal experience and sharing very explicitly my, my history with depression and hospitalization and all this stuff. And I was kind of like, well, why, why am I not doing this in my artwork? And the first time I... I made a piece that dealt that who I mean it it was it's called dysmorphic and it it had to do with my personal experience of dealing with anorexia and disordered eating in high school and it's difficult to look at I and mean, it's it's not pretty and I showed it um somewhere and I showed it at like a public space yeah at a group show and I remember when somebody came up to me and said I hate looking at this I really like it. And that felt to me like a success and mm -hmm. it felt like a validation of like this weird paradox where the more personal I've gone with my artwork, the more it has seemed to resonate with people. So ever since then, I've just been like leaning more and more personal. And, you know, now I'm using text. So back, back to writing, I'm finally doing some writing again. And that's felt really scary, but I've been trying to lean into the experience. Um, you know, the new project is doing a narrative project, like a graphic novel of sorts. So that's 
feeling scary. But but I again, I'm trying to lean into topics that make me uncomfortable, images that make me uncomfortable because they're personal. So yeah, that has very much had to like been a, a, a simultaneous story with my mental health story. Well, Frederick, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Ricky McGuckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast. 